I finished the book feeling um, suffused with ideas and, and a certain sense of passion. What I appreciated about it also was that it didn't feel uh, didactic. I wasn't being beat over the head with, um, or having my uh, a finger wagged at me. Instead, um, kind of by inference and, and by Count Rostov's example, I was kind of summoned to this higher project of, you know, kind of remembering the best of tradition while also keeping an eye to the outside world and connected to uh, world culture. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Ultrarescue and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me mention a book that I'm currently reading. I'm actually just about finished with Irving Howe's classic 1977 National Book Award-winning book, World of Our Fathers, The Journey of the East European Jews to America and the Life They Found and Made. This is a fascinating in-depth study of emigration from Russia, Poland, and Romania, and the Jewish immigrant experience in America at the very end of the 1800s and throughout the 1900s on the Lower East Side, the Bronx, Brooklyn, and beyond. In many ways, Howe's book is a tribute to the strength, the will, and the ingenuity of the Jews who came to America and their children and grandchildren. More to discuss about this great book another time. Our guest today is Alan Guy Wilcox. Alan is the founding artistic director of the Theater at Woods Hill a not-for-profit summer Shakespeare festival in central New York. Alan also runs a tutoring company in New York and works for Happiness Studies Academy, which is in Tel Aviv and New York. Alan, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, Aaron. When I asked you to tell me what you're reading and what you would like to discuss, you gave me a long list of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. I'll list all of these on my website. The book you and I agreed to discuss is A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolles, which is, not surprisingly, a combination of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Tolles' first novel, Rules of Civility, was a New York Times bestseller, and A Gentleman in Moscow, his second novel, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year and was included on several best books lists in 2016. When we spoke, you described A Gentleman in Moscow as grand entertainment. I wholeheartedly agree. Alan, I've got a long list of things I loved about this book, but tell us what appealed to you. This book is a rare bird. I'm first so heartened to see that the art of novel writing is alive and well. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautifully rendered book, but also it's a book that personally um, is at the intersection of a lot of my interests. Soviet Russia and the transition after the Bolshevik Revolution, a deep appreciation for a, a life of literature and how in some respects that's isolating. In some respects, it's a conduit to the outside world. Um, but mostly it's the tone that the book is rendered in, which I think is so special and unique. And it's kind of a magic trick how he's able to conjure it page after page. Rostov is not the narrator, but um, the again, the beauty of the literature in talking about um, a parent's responsibility for a child. And this is in the context of the Count's relationship with uh, the second of the uh, young girls that um, he has fallen into a 
guardianship relationship with the um, the author says a parent's responsibility could not be more simple to bring a child safely into adulthood so that she could have a chance to experience a life of purpose and God willing contentment. And then he ta- the, the author says it's the role of the parent to express his concerns and then take three steps back, not one, mind you, not two, but three, or maybe four, but by no means five. And I think of scenes from the book where the Count wanted to express his concerns and assert a parental role or a guardianship role, and he did take several steps back. He's, our sympathies are so squarely in his corner throughout the book because he's, he's wronged, he's so charming. I mean, he's dashing, he's a gallant in many ways uh, with a wonderful tongue-in-cheek sense of humor and a sense of kind of moral purpose. But it's this, it's this element of how he learns about how to parent and um, about how to kind of engage with a younger generation that really opens the book up, I think, for readers and, and helps us. It's at that point that he really begins, not so much with Nina, but really with Sophia, where, where he reflects on his, his relationship with her, that we also get his family history in more detail. I think that's, that's no surprise. It's like he can more truly be his full self <laughs> now that he's becoming a parent. <laughs> he, he says, or, or I don't know if he's saying or the author is reflecting, uh, talking about Sophia. She's no more than 30 pounds, no more than three feet tall. Her entire bag of belongings could fit in a single drawer. She rarely speaks unless spoken to, and her heart beats no lo- louder than a bird's. So how is it possible that she takes up so much space? Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it, it's, the writing is so vivid and communicates uh, his love for this happen chance. That, that is really the, the book's ultimate marvel, I think, is that each page is infused with so much deep feeling, really, yeah. that can only be rendered if you, if you go there, if you really kind of have experienced these things. If you, and it's the sense of a, an author who is not just a, a virtuoso and, and talented uh, a, a fencer with a quill, but someone who... Mm-hmm. Is wise in some way, if I if I may say yeah. so, and and so and that's transmitted through the page, and we want to be in the presence of that. I think it's it reminds us of what we care most about, and that's what makes this book, I think, a treasure, and that's why I think it's doing so well. And how old was Rostov when Sophia came into his life? Gosh, I wouldn't. I I think that he must have been. So I think he entered the Metropole. It must be in his early thirties. Yes, right. So maybe he was in his mid. 40s or something like this. Or a little bit older. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Fascinating. Uh, So talk talk more about the Metropole. I think, if I remember correctly, the Metropole was built at around the same time as the Plaza in New York, Mm. uh, the Ritz in Paris, and and, and of the same stature within the city. That's a great point. Um, It's the one place in Moscow that we're given insight into where um, the kind of global cosmopolitan elite come and you know there's the watering hole the shalapin there is the the boyarsky of course the the great restaurant run by emile the french chef and so there's a kind of pedigree present there that the author suggests is present throughout the world in these major hotels and that these are kind of bastions of um shared experience knowledge insight and a kind of certainly a kind of class 
a class of person, a class of man, a class of leader, a class of intellectual. And what's kind of that that might be kind of off putting to some. It may be um, something that's scorned by the 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 Bolsheviks, but kind of what's heartening and amazing about it is it's a it's a it's a a model for how distinct cultures can have a shared culture as part of their experience as well. The metropole is a you know it's a it, it becomes a microcosm of you know of of society at, at this point in time. Just kind of dazzled by the place too. And the Boyarsky, a fabulous restaurant within the metropole, as you said, run by Emil. And um, ultimately, uh, the Count works at the Metropole. Right. And this is unsettling, I and, think. And he, he, he doesn't have to work anywhere. Right. I mean, he, without giving too much away, he, he has resources. He has resources. Um, but I think in this moment, in the you know, as the revolution kind of... Can, it, grows older, 10, 15, 20 years older, um, his talents are being, rec he's being recruited continually um, to serve. So, you know, maybe first with the poem in a way, uh, later with his um, work, you know, because his expertise in, in wine and food pairings, and also, you know, most notably with, with manners in, in a kind of a deep sense. I should just say that I think that this book enhances the the meaning of a comedy of manners because yes. it kind of shows that these aren't just pleasantries these are also kind of reflecting of um, what's best about about kind of human nature and then later when he's recruited again for the conversations with I think Ossip is his name um, Ossip yes right so to see him make that transition is at first quite startling but then of course he's a natural and I think the book handles it with a, a lot of grace. Um, and then the relationship that he develops, you know, they call it the triumvirate, these yes. three who meet on a regular basis and, and, and try to keep the, the flair and the integrity of the Boyarsky alive, even though it's kind of under assault from a new manager, a new hotel manager, is quite, is quite touching. And, uh, you know, the Bouillabaisse. Yeah, so the Bouillabaisse caper. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... The, you know, in general, you know, for those who may not be familiar, the, you know, the Bouillabaisse is a classic of the town of Marseille, this wonderful seafood stew. Uh, and it's done really just so by Emile, but it also contains in it all these memories and emotions and feelings that we get through the sensory experience of, of, of the taste and the process of preparing it. And they have to wrangle these ingredients and they're they're hard to come by, and so when they finally and, and there are shortages in, in, in Moscow. Absolutely, and and it highlights the series of relationships that have to be maintained in order to overcome the scarcity in the situation, and the fact that they'd work so hard to do something for something that's seemingly so ephemeral, a meal that's just shared between three men with a bottle of wine and an evening's conversation. It shows how much these issues of culture matter to these men. It's not just something that gets thrown on. The, it's, it's not just the sideline of society. It's, it's integral. And, and did, did it take what, what period of time? I'm thinking it took several years to pull off this caper. What we do get is the feeling of, um, supreme success when they finally have, you know, yes. brought in the last. And, and there is at one point where one of them suggested a shortcut. And I believe it was a count who said, 
From the outset, it was agreed that there would be no skimping, no shortcuts or substitutions. It was the symphony or silence. Mm. It's an act of defiance. No, really. it is an act of defiance. Um, as much as it is, you know, and, and, pleasurable. And, and they almost get caught. And they almost get caught. And, you know, it's, it's I think, a few pages later when um, the willowy woman, Anna, the, Anna, the former um, movie star who's yeah. now close with the count. The one with the dogs. The one with the dogs. Yeah. Um, she, I believe she makes this point that, you know, and this is something I think Tolls does continually in the book is he sets up a kind of delightful circumstance and then also shows you the dimensionality behind it, how this moment kind of resonates beyond just the sensory pleasure. She describes Marseille and, and reminds the count that Marseille is a port town, unlike Moscow. So it's got this act, it's got an yeah, access yeah. point to the outside world. And right. so the act of doing this is really, a, it's about communion with one another, but it's, it's about memory. And it's also about reaching out, um, pulling in, pulling in the best of other cultures. So, so, so th- th- there's richness in everything, every topic they talk about. You mentioned mm-hmm. wine uh, and a quote from the book about wine. Um, the contents of the wine bottle in, in his hand was a product of a history as unique and complex as that of a nation or a man. In its color, aroma, and taste, it would certainly express the idiosyncratic geology and prevailing climate of its home terrain. But in addition, it would express all the natural phenomena of its vintage. In a sip, it would evoke the timing of that winter's thaw, the extent of that summer's rain, the prevailing winds, and the frequency of clouds. Yes, a bottle of wine was the ultimate distillation of time and place, a poetic expression of individuality itself. Amazing. Incredible language. And and again, it's something that is a dish best served up through fiction and story because we we really fall in love with with these characters, and I think that if if you know, I'm very wary of trying to um, posit authors' intentions. That's not a, a game that I'm really very comfortable playing. But you know, just for point of example, if the basic contents of this book had been somehow transmitted in a nonfiction work, I think we'd we'd lose the sense of high romance as you start to yes. parse the political politics and hindsight being 2020 in terms of whether this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And I think where, where this gets to sit is less in a place of judgment and more in a place of kind of celebration, appreciating complexity, appreciating individuality. But I think I come out of the book um, feeling like I have a sense for where the author stands on these issues, that they're, that when you speak about an individual and individuality that there are certain circumstances in which that's like most likely to thrive and certain circumstances in which it gets repressed continually as part of the part of the program so without making a political statement i think the author certainly lets us know where he thinks human individuality operates best but it's in kind of a dialectic because we're looking at his life and it's it's kind of this this golden age, um, but it's always in the distance. It's always kind of in the in the rearview mirror. Um, it's fleeting. And and the, the book starts in 1922, uh, goes through uh, periods of shortage in Moscow, the five-year plans, the failure of five-year plans, and so on. So it spans a, a long period of time. Surprisingly, um, I, I think this is maybe a problem that or a predicament or an opportunity that was solved by this June 21 yeah. um, device. And I, I think it's perfectly charming and it makes you feel like you're actually picking up where you left off in the kind of season season of man. 
Um, one other detail that I think lovingly expresses that is we see we see the count um, who does his kind of morning calisthenics. He does his squats, and you know, year over year, the number goes from twenty to ten to five. But you see a man who's still committed to doing it, no matter what. He's kind of committed to um, those kind of traditions, those habits that there's a, a way to live in the world that involves doing things even when you don't want to do them, that involves kind of, you know, committing to a set of, a set of principles, and some of those are, are purely moral and some of them are have to be embodied. And it forces the reader to ask his or herself what, you know, what are those habits that I'm forming? Um, you know, the, the scandal might be out there in the world. It might be the responsibility of a political class or uh, a certain elite or but it's also something that takes place in each of our hearts um you know letting certain patterns of behavior fall by the wayside um you know even the act of reading itself versus um you know something i love which is also watching watching films you know um we give one we we, we kind of give one thing up and, and there it goes absolutely yeah so his his principles and his dignity uh, remain intact through all of these uh, difficulties he suffers with. And sometimes you think about the fact, well, he was uh, confined to the Metropole, this beautiful hotel with a fabulous restaurant. <laughs> How bad could it be? Well, he was confined. And um, he was a man who had a love for life, but he created a life within the Metropole. And, uh, it was a rich, rich life indeed. A gilded cage. A gilded cage. It's true. Yeah. And again, without giving any uh, details of the book away, um, it's the effect he has on those around him, even those who are in certain ways dead set against him. It, it's kind of the the effect, the undeniable effect of his personal warmth and of this charm that is it just has this deep nostalgia in it that uh, that gives it gives him the benefit of the doubt with the groups of groups of people. And it, and it gives him allies where he'd least expect it. Right. And so, as you said, this can so much of what you've said can be done in fiction, uh, far better than nonfiction. So you you have a broad love for fiction uh, beyond uh, this wonderful book. Do you want to talk a little bit about your Shakespeare work and, and the theater? Gosh, I'd love to. So in 2016, my brother and I, in conjunction with our uh, high school AP history teacher <laughs> and others, um, started the theater at Woodsill. So it's a 501c3 nonprofit theater company. And it was the intersection of a good opportunity and um, kind of our desire to create a mechanism in our life to continue to have a, an intimate experience with these plays, to not have our uh, experience of Shakespeare be confined to, you know, uh, the occasional reading through of half a play or remembering a few stray lines. But how can we, you know, bake in performance of Shakespeare at a high level uh, into our lives, work through the canon, and involve the community on a deep level. So that's something we've been doing for the past few years. Uh, this this year, in the summer of 2020, we're really excited to be returning to comedy. Uh, last year, we performed Hamlet, which was absolutely wonderful, but also uh, it takes its tolls sure. in certain ways. And so we're returning with Twelfth Night, which is a really delightful, festive comedy with a lot of music in it. Um, some people ask, I just bring that up that way because some people ask, you know, you must know so much about Shakespeare to start a Shakespeare theater company. And, um, it's really 
about intention. It's just, I, I hope to learn more. So we wanted to set up a mechanism to ensure that. So when are the performances? Performances are, are currently in August of each year. We bring the actors up for several weeks, rehearse, eat a bunch of great food that's, that's found upstate in the Utica area, uh, and then do 10 performances. That's what our, our, our record is now. Um, we're kind of each year we're kind of doing a stretch one year and then we kind of refine the process the next. So we kind of push ourselves a little bit and expand the performances and then we try to make sure that we're doing the process correctly um, the, the following year. So that's kind of, that's our story. And we just kind of hope to put one foot in front of the other and hopefully develop a, a permanent home for Shakespeare in central New York where I'm from. Uh, we have Glimmerglass Opera uh, nearby, which is now called the Glimmerglass Festival, um, the Stanley Theater. So. Uh, audiences upstate are hungry for this. There's a lot of talent and a lot of great um, hungry audiences. So we just have to be that that bastion for them if possible. And did you say this is near Utica? It's near Utica. It's in a small town called Sequoit on a, on a farm, actually. And we took this classic round roof style uh, dairy barn and converted it into a human space, actually for my sister's wedding. And then uh, we started you know, we started moving forward with the nonprofit the following that's year. Great. I'll, I'll make sure to put something on the website so people can find you. Appreciate it. Yeah, that, that, that's very exciting. And do you act in the, uh, in the performance? I generally do take roles in part because I, I'm an actor in in my in my daily life, and also because um, I like to help set a set a tone. Um, but this year I'll also be directing the play, so my my role is uh, a bit bit smaller. And what is Andrew's role? Uh, Andrew. Uh, Andrew Wilcox, my brother, is our kind of all-around operations manager. So, as with any young nonprofit, kind of everyone does everything yeah. <laughs> uh, in many degrees. But um, Andrew does everything from fundraising, working on our website, helping to negotiate uh, programs, working with corporate sponsorship. I mean, it's the whole nine yards, and it's continual. That's so, great. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, last thing: bookstores. Favorite bookstores in the New York area, or or up near Utica. Great question. You know, um, obviously, in, in in places outside New York and, and in New York too, the the kind of the bigger name bookstores, the kind of flagship uh, bookstores have have been dominating and shut down mom and pop shops. But um, we continually see in the city new new bookstores um, sprouting up all the time. Um, one that's a favorite of mine that I just have to shout out in Brooklyn because it's done so well over the past 15 years, and it's continued to thrive, is Spoonbill um, on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn. I mean, there are many that are, are fantastic and interesting and have a, a unique environment, but I have to give props to Spoonbill for just surviving and sticking it out. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Good. Well, thank you. This has been a terrific discussion. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Howard. Follow us on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com on Instagram and Twitter at BookwormsITW, and on Facebook at Bookworms in the Wild. And message me to tell me what you're reading or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team, Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything. 
and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse. Ten-month-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as well as to eat, smile, and giggle, sometimes uncontrollably. Life is grand for Jake, as it should be. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, including today. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Filari, who is working on the editing with me. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.